Since the beginning of time, man has had one settled purpose. One settled purpose unites people around the world, no matter what language they speak or what culture they came from or what century they were born in. One settled purpose unites all of humanity together. Man holds a settled resolve to throw off the yoke of submission. The desire for freedom, the desire for autonomy is universal. You know, for some peoples, it's a tribal freedom. It's a me and my tribe. We want to have our own way, our own freedom. Uh, For most of us in the West, it's a desire for total personal freedom. That me, myself, and I, I will be the captain of my soul, the captain of my destiny. I will choose what's right and wrong, what I should do, and what I, how I will spend the days of my life. But whether you seek freedom as a community or as an individual, the desire to choose your own goals and values and laws is universal. But what is this yoke of submission that they ultimately seek to overthrow? This universal yoke that men seek to cast aside is God's dominion. And let me clarify, when I say God, I mean Yahweh. I mean the God of Israel, the God of the Bible. And when I say God's dominion, I mean his sovereign right to rule over us to make us for his purposes and to call us to obey his laws and his ways. Now the problem of rebellion to God's dominion goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden, doesn't it? It goes all the way back to the beginning. Adam and Eve wanted autonomy from God. They at least, they at least wanted parity to be made like him, to be like a friend to be uh, an intellectual equal with God. The serpent told them to eat the forbidden fruit, saying in Genesis 3, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. And that sounded pretty good to Adam and Eve. And they ate the fruit And all of the sin and misery that we experience in this life and from day to day is a result of that decision, that one man's disobedience that we confessed earlier in our service came at that moment. This longing to be free of God's dominion is the red thread that links all of history together. All of unbelieving history is one long and sad story of this fact. Man warring and raging to overthrow the dominion that God has over us. Now, as we think about what this looks like, uh, man's desire to overthrow God's yoke of rule happens in many ways. So some do it overtly. right? Some, some 
seeking to cast off that yoke is very plain and obvious. Say, for example, um, men may publicly and persistently speak out against the Bible and his church. You know, they might parade in the streets or legislate in the halls of Congress that which God calls sin. I'm seeing just horrible things in the United States election. Um, people voting, like for example, voting into law that if uh, an aborted baby, uh, if it's a failed abor- abortion and the baby comes out and is living there on the table, citizens of the United States have voted, I think it was Montana, Deborah, is that right? In Montana, voted that it's okay to let that child die. Or to have the doctor slit its throat or whatever they do to, to finish the baby off. I mean, as they're dis- I mean, people are voting for sin, cheering it, applauding it, saying it's my right. You know where other overt ways might be? Those that limit and molest the people of God in the workplace or the public sphere? So he's saying, well, we're tolerant, but we won't let that view, we won't let you do this thing or teach that class because you hold this view about God. So there are, there's certainly overt, blatant examples of man seeking to overthrow the yoke of God's rule. But others do it in much more subtle ways. And I'd say these subtle ways are often the deadly ways. For example, they might damn God with faint praise saying of the Christian faith, that's okay if it works for you. Yeah, that's fine. That's damning God with faint praise. It's still throwing off the yoke of God's dominion over them. I think a big problem in Norway, they might spend Lord's days at the cabin, going on vacation, rather than doing their duty to gather as the people of God to worship Him and to serve His people. That is a subtle way of overthrowing the yoke of God's command because God is not just Lord of our salvation. He's Lord of our calendars too. And he calls us to gather one day in seven faithfully to worship him and to not forsake the regular assembling. So we overthrow God's yoke when people just say, well, I'll go to church when it's convenient for me and my schedule, my sport." schedule, my TV shows, my kids' activities. Or one might simply go through life silencing and ignoring, to quote the confession, the light of nature and the works of creation that do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God as to leave men inexcusable. So all of these tactics, whether overt or subtle, are for the same purpose to reject God's authority, to cast off the yoke of his rule. Unbelieving academics, uh, dinks, uh, dual income, no kids, (laughs) pleasure seekers and sadists, and everyone in between, whether overtly, subtly, or subconsciously, All unbelievers are ultimately working and fighting, living and striving for one and the same purpose, to achieve freedom and autonomy from 
God. And they will do whatever they can to throw off the yoke of God's dominion over them. Now the Bible is clear about what happens to those who reject God's lordship. To throw off the yoke of God's lordship is to be at war with God. That's why in the psalmist in Psalm 2 talks about the, the heathen nations raging and plotting in vain. To reject God's way is to be at war with him. And what you need to know and what we need to know is that waging war against God is a losing proposition. It's not going to end well. Rebellion to God bears terrifying temporal and eternal consequences. And I preach, even as the prophets who wrote before me, that you might avoid that peril. And that brings us to the book of Obadiah, which speaks to this end. This morning we turn to Obadiah's prophetic ministry in his book, and we will see that anyone who casts off the yoke of God's rule will perish, but the kingdom shall be the Lord's and for his people. We're going to study Obadiah this morning under three points. The first point, rebellion to God is an act of war. Rebellion to God is an act of war. We see this in verse 1. In verse 1, we read, The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom, We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Verse 1 describes Obadiah as a heavenly envoy sent to the nations. It says, We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations, and the Lord has sent Obadiah to declare this message to the nations. And the Lord's dominion is an everlasting dominion that stretches from shore to shore, from the city, this city, to the farthest reaches of the universe and to the very limits of what is seen and unseen. And God's prophets reveal that pagan kings and their nations are accountable to God. The ministry of the prophets wasn't just some local thing, just for the people of God, because God just has a local jurisdiction where just his laws need to be followed by his people. Now, God has eternal dominion over everything seen and unseen, and even the ministry of the prophets was to declare the will of God to the nations. And in this instance, what is Obadiah saying? He is saying that God is angry with their rebellion, and they have become enemy nations. For they are at war with God by rejecting his laws. And the prophets proclaim that they cannot escape God's judgment and dominion. Now, as we look at Obadiah specifically, where the other prophets 
spoke to a lot of nations, say in Isaiah or Jeremiah, there's whole sections and chapters devoted to indictments against different nations. In Obadiah's case, he was sent specifically to one nation, and that is Edom. We read in 1b, thus says the Lord concerning Edom. Now, why was Obadiah sent to Edom? One scholar writes, Edom is the subject of more separate oracles against foreign nations and more brief or passing hostile references in the prophetical books than any other nation. So I want to explain why that is for a moment. What's the deal with Edom? You may have seen uh, in, I think it's the third Indiana Jones, uh, where they're going to find the Holy Grail, and there's that, that like carved out like building thing in the desert. It's called known as Petra. Okay, have you seen that? That's Edom. Okay, that's kind of just to give you a geographical reference point. Okay, so they're going to be in the southeast of the land of Canaan, or on the southeastern border, I should say. So what's the deal with Edom? Well, the Edom is the people of Esau. So remember, Esau was Jacob's brother. So going all the way back to the days of the patriarchs, remember we have Abraham, we have Isaac, and Jacob. And Isaac had twin sons, Esau, who was the firstborn, and Jacob. And the contention between Jacob and Esau goes all the way back to the womb. Remember, we read in Genesis 25, 22, that, that they were warring and contending and struggling with each other even in the womb. And in that same passage, the Lord tells Rebekah that two nations are in her womb. We've got two countries in there. And most importantly, the Lord says to her, the older shall serve the younger. So even in the womb, God's exercising his dominion declares that Esau and this nation that will come from Esau is going to serve Jacob and the nation that comes from Jacob, which becomes Israel. So this is the key point here that God appointed Esau to serve Jacob. This service was not just one brother to another. This service would be as one nation to another. Edom was to be a helper nation for Israel. And Esau, what did he think about this? He absolutely resented his God-given role. He hated it. He did anything he could to cast off that yoke of God's dominion. At one point, Esau even seeks to kill Jacob, to do the very opposite of loving and serving him. He sought to kill him. There was no love lost between these brothers. But now we find ourselves in the days of Obadiah, which is the days right after the Babylonian captivity when Babylon came on and took the Jews out of Judah and took them into captivity, destroyed the temple, and all these things that happened after 586 B.C. 
So what does this Edom now have to do with Jacob and Esau back then? Well, the reason Edom is in the crosshairs is because they have committed, once again, treachery. They have committed a breach of their duty. We will see in verses 10 to 14 that they did not come to help Judah in the their own blood relatives. They did not come to help them in the day of their distress. They watched Babylon come in. They cheered the success of the Babylonians. They took advantage of their blood kin. And God called it violence that they committed against their blood kin of Judah. And for the original audience hearing these prophetic words from Obadiah, of course, a whole history of violence and treachery at the hands of Edom would be recalled. Time does not permit to go through all that. But if you've read your Old Testament, we've seen some of that as we've gone through this series. Just Edom is constantly a thorn in the side of Israel. And at the core of this treachery, to make it clear, is something far worse. The worst sin Edom committed was not betraying blood relatives. The worst treachery was casting off the yoke of their God-given role to be a helper nation. When God said the older shall serve the younger in Genesis 25, God gave Edom the commission to protect and to serve Israel. So Edom's core sin was treachery against God by casting off the yoke that God assigned to them. They're committing treachery, treason against the God of the universe. And they said, protect Israel? Forget this. They're raising their fists against God. And so what does the Lord say to Edom then in this book that we're studying He says, prepare for war. Prepare for war. In verse 1d, the bottom part of the verse, we have heard a report from the Lord and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us rise against her for battle. So God has begun a proxy war with Edom. You know what a proxy war is? It's like, the, it's like the war we're seeing happening in Ukraine, right? Where the West is at war with Russia, but the West is not actively fighting against Russia, right? The West is giving Ukraine money and arms to fight Russia. That's a proxy war. And, and as it were, God is fighting a proxy war with Edom because this message going out is calling the surrounding nations to rise up for battle to take Edom down. And God often works through what we call secondary means or causes, where it looks like other people are doing things, but that is God's activity through people and through nations. And he is raising up the nations to rise against Edom in battle. But Edom's fate is not a singular thing. Edom's fate is illustrative of what God will do to all nations that rebel and seek to cast off his yoke of dominion. 
So when people march in the streets to celebrate sin, when they demand the legislation of sin in the halls of Congress or the storting, when they shed the blood of the innocent and call it good, God says, prepare for war. People from lackadaisical, unbelieving stay-at-home moms to ivory tower philosophers are at war with God. The proletariat and the bourgeois love sin and hate God's yoke. They despise God. They despise His worship. They despise His universal authority. Some do it overtly, some subtly. But this unbelieving world craves, above all things, freedom from God. But hear the prophet. Man's lust for independence will be his undoing. Man's lust for self-autonomy will be his ruin. The lust for self-government, self-rule, and the will of the people to be the sole arbiter of truth opposed to God, will mean the ruin of nations and the eternal damnation of souls. And that leads us to our second point. A war with God is a war you can't win. A war with God is a war you can't win. We're going to briefly cover the middle section of this book from verses 2 to 18. What will become of rebellious Edom? Well, the Lord pronounces the judgment in verse 2. He says, Behold, I will make you small among the nations, and you shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, Who will bring me to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. The Lord is taking Edom down. He says, I will make you small among the nations. Their pride will be their undoing. Though they soar in the skies, they will fall to the ground by the will of God's command. And on the day the nations came to attack Edom, every man shall be cut off by slaughter. The Lord says in verse 8, Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau, and your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Teman, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. This is a reference to the destruction of Edom's army. As one scholar put it, God's purpose is nothing less than the complete annihilation of Edom's forces. So this is not saying that there won't be any ethnic lineage that continues, but as a force, as an army, as a nation, they are going down. This will come to pass as we are told by the Lord through the prophet, because they rebelled against God's yoke. Verse 10, they did violence to Jacob. They forsook their sacred duty to protect Israel. They did violence to Jacob. 
Verse 11, they stood aloof in the day of Jacob's distress. Verse 12, they gloated over Jacob's misfortune. Verse 13, they looted Jacob's wealth. They went in after the Babylonians to take what they could from their blood kin. Verse 14, they cut off Jacob's fugitives and handed over the survivors. So those fleeing from Babylon, they got in the way and turned them back around to their captives, to their captors, to Babylon, their blood relatives, their cousins. But this war with God will not end well. And we see this in verses 15 to 18. The prophet says in verse 15, For the day of the Lord is near upon all nations. And in verse 18, There shall be no survivor for the house of Esau. Esau's judgment is once again illustrative of all nations that rebel against him and all his enemies. The book of Revelation says that Jesus will strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will, tress, he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty, Revelation nineteen fifteen. Just as for Edom, so with all nations, a war with God is a war you can't win. A war with God is a losing proposition. It's madness and folly. It's insanity. And the consequences are horrific. The Bible is clear about the consequence of rebellion as we study the whole counsel of God. The consequence for rebellion is mixed in this earth. You know, one nation might overthrow another one. One nation might lose its supreme status and become a servant nation to, or a puppet state to another. But the eternal consequences are horrific. The Bible tells us that the ultimate consequence of rebellion is eternal conscious punishment. Jesus speaks about the final judgment in Matthew 25. God's enemies will be cast into hell, which Jesus describes as the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Matthew 25, 41. And he goes on to say that the punishment is not that is eternal is not momentary. For Jesus contrasts the gift of his people with eternal life in verse 46 of Matthew 25, with the fate of the wicked, which is eternal punishment. And hell is a place of eternal torment. In Mark 9, 48, Jesus calls it a place where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. In the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, Jesus describes hell as a place of conscious anguish. In Luke 16, 24 to 25, the rich man says, I am in anguish in this flame, as he's calling out to Lazarus on the other side. I'm in anguish in this flame. But he's awake, he's alive. He wasn't just kind of burnt to a crisp and then done. The Bible does not teach annihilationism. 
And Revelation describes the eternal conscious torment in chapter 14, verse 11, where it says, And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. So again, the Bible isn't saying they're just going to be burnt and snuffed and out. No, this torment goes up forever and ever with no rest, day or night. Just as we don't have minds to fully conceive who God is because he is infinite, I don't think we have minds fully prepared to conceive the torment of everlasting destruction. But the Bible is clear that hell is a place of eternal consciousness. Punishment. A war with God is not a war that you can win. Not now and not in eternity. And this is why we must keep our faith in Christ, who is the true King. After this description of hell in Revelation 14, John writes, Here is a call for the endurance of the saints. Our knowledge and study of hell should be a good enough motivator to call us to endure. John says, here's a call, okay? It's like waving the red flag. Here's the call, here it is. Here's the call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus Beloved, Jesus is our raft of salvation. John writes in his gospel, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever should believe in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Now God's love for the world has been grievously met by the world's hatred of God. But for those who believe in Christ, Eternal life is coming. And that leads us to our third and final point. The church will inherit the earth and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. The church will inherit the earth and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. And we see this in the closing verses, verses 19 to 21. Of Obadiah. The prophet concludes his message by saying that God's people will repossess the land as well as the land of their enemies. We read in verse 19 those of the Negev shall possess Mount Esau. So that's Edom. And those of the Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines, another great ancient enemy of the people of God. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria. And Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath. And the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad shall possess the cities of the Negev. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau. And the kingdom shall be the Lord's. So Mount Esau, that is Edom, the land of the Philistines, the land of the Canaanites, will all belong to God's people. And we're told here that deliverers or saviors will take back the city of God. 
Jerusalem will be taken back and the kingdom shall be the Lord's as the prophet concludes. Obadiah is giving us a prophetic depiction that points us ahead, not ultimately to some of the exiles returning to Israel after the Babylonian captivity, but he's ultimately pointing us ahead to the Jew and Gentile church, the people of God who will inherit the earth. Jesus said in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 5, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Paul says in Romans 8, 19, that creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Creation itself is subject to bondage and groaning right now while sin reigns on the earth. But creation itself, as if it were alive, is waiting to see the revealing of the sons of God. These are promises of the new creation that Jesus shares with us. When Jesus returns, he will vanquish all of his enemies, the last being death itself. When Jesus returns, we will hear those words from Revelation 11, 15. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. As the 24 elders said, we in heaven being redeemed With them, we're going to give thanks, as they said, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the world. You know, we have this notion of a green party that is here to save the world. The true destroyers of the world are those that cast off the yoke of God's dominion and hold a high hand to God. And our Lord Jesus will come and destroy every last one of them. When Jesus returns, the battle with evil shall be over, the new creation shall dawn, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's on earth as it is in heaven. We confess the Lord's prayer every week as a church. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That answer and that prayer will be answered and fulfilled when our Lord returns. When we pray that prayer, we pray for our Lord Jesus to come. But this is only possible because Jesus made the way for us. This is only possible 
that we can share in the inheritance because he made the way for us. I think everyone here knows this, but we are all rebels by nature. We are by nature enemies of God. We are by nature without hope and without God in this world, to quote Paul. Romans 3 teaches us that we are utterly depraved. There is no one righteous. No, not one. And even one sin against God is a declaration of war against him. But God in his mercy sent his son to redeem his people. As the great hymn goes, from heaven he came and sought her. And we have this promise in places like John 3.16 that Jesus gives the gift of life to all who believe in him. That's all he asks. Believe in him. Embrace Jesus as your Savior and your Lord. Embrace him as the Lord of your life, the God of your soul, of your week, of your calendar, of your hopes and your dreams, and you will be saved. Paul says in Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that he's king, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So we've seen this morning that unbelieving man is at war with God. We've seen that a war with God is a war you can't win. But we've seen this glorious hope as well that the earth shall belong to God's people, the church, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. So I want to conclude by just exhorting you to take on Jesus' yoke. Take on the yoke of Christ. The decision is yours. It's here before you in in the word of God. And as it's preached to you, will you vainly cast off God's yoke? Or will you embrace his lordship over you? Scripture is clear that your choice has eternal consequence. Where do you want to be? And whose side do you want to be on in the day of judgment? To rebel against God is an act of open war and it leads to eternal conscious punishment. Of such horror is that the best human language that can be used is that of a fire. But to embrace the yoke of God and our Lord Jesus Christ, friends, is the way of life. We embrace the Lord's yoke by believing in Jesus and following him. So I'll conclude with the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, who calls us to take on this yoke and follow him to his eternal inheritance in the new creation. And Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty five. I thank you, Father, as he's praying. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven 
and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And now here's Jesus' words to us. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come to Jesus by faith. Follow him throughout the days of your life. Take his yoke upon you and you will find rest for your soul both now and forever. Let's pray.